0: Hello and welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Olivia, I'm sitting here with Joel Nayum and today our guest is Peter Fitzsimons who has come in with his new book James Cook. Welcome Peter.
1: Thank you for having me. I've had a lovely time even though I've just finished signing 1800 books. <laughs> it was quite an
0: epic experience. I know, but people
1: say it must be a horrible thing to do to sign books but I must say I could probably
0: do that till midnight. Yeah, but you're a machine. <laughs> there aren't that many authors like you, I don't reckon. There <laughs> are a couple of breaks, but I think you need it. Yeah, you did a great job. Um, so tell us about this one. This is You, you told us about it's this on the podcast I, I'm gonna, last going It's interesting.
1: I'm going to take, take a different kind of run-up to this. When I was about 32 years old, I broke up with the woman I was going at. 30, 30, 30, 31, 30. I broke up with this young woman that I'd been going out with for a couple of years, and I was feeling very sad. And I got out my scrapbook of p- previous articles that I'd written for the Sydney Morning Herald and I suddenly felt I was among friends. In the idea being that when you create, you you pour yourself into something, you've got friends. And books is a bit different because they're lifelong friends and I've got a different relationship. Does this make me sound a bit Looney Tunes? No, I like it. We hear I it. I want to all see where time. you're going. Well, you, you, <laughs> pour, you, you pour your life into it and you're, you associate... In some ways, when when the Beasley book, for example, which was twenty odd years ago, I associate that with my children being very small, mm. and I remember sitting in the corner, surrounded by cuttings of paper, as my kids crawled all around. And with this one, this will be. I feel like this is a solid friend. It's not my best friend. It's a it's a solid friend. I liked Cook. I was fascinated. My it started out with my wife Lisa Wilkinson, who you, I think you know. Mm. Um, she she said to me, you should do... She's been saying to me for 10 years, you must do Captain Cook because he's the most mythological figure, if I can put it like that, or she put it like that, in Australian history, who starts out as, you know, the so-called man who discovered Australia. Well, of course, he didn't For the, in the first place. The First Nations peoples have been here for 65,000 years. In the second place, the Dutch got here, 1619, uh, and... Uh, uh, well, first set foot, I think, Dirk Hartog was sixteen, nineteen. Ne- there was never anything of discovery, but he was hailed from the first as, you know, not the great white hope, but, you know, that kind of the great white navigator. And then when we became more, as a people, more aware of the tragedy of the Indigenous past and just how heavily the tragedies of the past weigh on the First Nations peoples of the present then the stocks if you like the share price if you like of captain cook goes down and it goes it goes back and forth as the time goes by and depending on which part of the community a lot of people are a part of and your politics and all the rest cook goes up and down well i wanted to, ideally i don't it's for you to judge whether i succeeded and i'm making this up as i go along but you get it <laughs> i wanted to just go in what's the evidence show what kind of a man was this and for me I was, I was absolutely stunned when it came to coming, him setting foot in Australia that the first thing that stunned me was as they go through the heads of what became Botany Bay, there were Indigenous fishermen in their very small canoes fishing with their spears here, and here comes the Endeavour, floating by within 300 yards of them and they don't look up. You know, what? Wow. Extra- mm. I mean, it's, un- it's unimaginable. It's you and I, Joel, being on Bondi Beach and a spaceship which is about 300 times bigger than anything we've ever seen before lands on the other end of Bondi Beach, we're out in the water, and we don't look up. And this wasn't just a one-off. This happened a lot as they were going up later on as they were going up the coast of Australia. They could see Indigenous men walking along the beach chatting, and with their spears, didn't look to the right. It's, a, it's extraordinary. And it's a cultural phenomenon that, I must say, I still have a hard time getting my head around. But the thing that most amazed me was they come through the heads of Botany Bay, they turn what you and I might call left, probably called a little to the south, <laughs> south by southwest. They drop the anchor and they head ashore. And as they head ashore, their way is blocked by two... Warriors with spears and shields. And they are saying what they shout at the, the white men who they just they don't understand. They think they're, they're spirits from another land, spirits from the dream time effectively, and they shout at them, Warra Wara Warra, Warra Wara warra, Why, which broadly translates to go away, seriously go away. We're not joking, go away, leave us alone. They just want to be left alone. Anyway, Cook Finally, they've been delayed by 15 minutes. Cook gets a musket, has puts birdshot in it, fires it between them, and they they don't move. They're still very brave men, and they don't move with their shields and their spears. And then he gets the musket again, and he fires, and he hits the older man on the left and speckles, speckles his behind effectively, speckles his body with nothing that will kill him, but visits violence upon before Cook sets foot on Australia. I mean, it's breathtaking. And, and the thing about it is, and Cook was not a violent man, and that man, as far as we know, didn't die. But what stuns me in terms of doing this book is that this is the iconic, in terms of what subsequently happened to Australia in the last 250-odd years, the colonisation, the white settlement becoming a becoming a nation and the rest of it. Here is the Englishman with a gun and about to set foot for the first time on on Botany Bay soil, and before even setting foot he fires a gun that at, at one of the warriors how is it that as a people we don't know this i mean are you a bit stunned like that you you studied it yeah. you sta- you studied we it at school that. we were never taught that i was never taught that and i wrote in one of my books called a simpler time which was sort of a memoir of growing up at Peach Ridge, about an hour north of sydney at Peach Ridge public school and i wrote about it and i said Look, when I was growing up and we learned about Captain Cook, I had the impression there were about 250 of them because there was one in the crow's nest that said, I think I can see Australia. There were about 12, in, 12 of them that rode the one Captain Cook ashore and it reminded me of that line, what was it, the pretenders? When you own a big chunk of the bloody third world, the babies just come with the scenery. That as I was learning about Captain Cook in the 1960s, the first, first first Nations peoples, they were, they were part of the scenery. They were part of the background. It was all about Captain Cook. And I didn't hear about any first mate. There was no Bly and Fletcher Christian. It was all Captain Cook with, a, with an honourable mention to Joseph Banks, the, the botanist. But this was another thing that fascinated me because I started out doing the three expeditions. So I worked with four four... Well, on this one, I think I had three researchers with a fourth in and out. But, you know, heavily trawling, trawling through the documents, through the newspaper accounts back in England, through through all manner of primary documents, try, try to bring this bloke to life to work out what happened. But the fascinating thing, I wanted to call this book The Odd Couple, because you look at the relationship between mm. Joseph Banks and Captain Cook. Captain Cook, as poor as a church mouse, who, who came from very, very humble beginnings, and when he uh, it was decided that Cook would be would be the member of the Royal Navy, the captain of the Royal Navy, or the captain of the ship, if not the rank of captain, to take them out. He was given 20 pounds. Joseph Banks, he he put 10,000 pounds of his own money towards it. And that was a difference, that was a fair reflection of the difference of their wealth. So they come out, and, and Banks is this aristocrat, Uh, with a very fine mind, and he's not the inventor of botanical sciences, but he's in the early days, realises how extraordinary the whole thing can be. And they go on their expedition, and they get on reasonably well. I mean, it's very, very much an English class system. They were from totally different classes, Mm. which both men recognised. But the fascinating thing is when they got back to England, all of the papers said, Mr Banks has returned. Mr Banks has accomplished this, Mr Banks has accomplished that. And Cook was not much more than the cab driver in the public mind. Well, by the end of the second expedition, it had all changed. And and, and basically by now, Cook is is the one that everybody remembers, writes about. Banks is the footnote. And they were such different men. I mean, I I document in this book that when they get to Tahiti, which was not quite their first landfall, but the first landfall in the Pacific. After they go down the Atlantic, come around Cape Horn, uh, and they get to Tahiti, and th- there awaits them in Tahiti a sexual smorgasbord of, and I make obviously make no judgments, but it was a very if I can call it a libertine culture, mm. and you've got these toothless sailors from the slums of Liverpool <laughs> coming down the coming you know landing on the shore of Tahiti, being awash with. Beautiful women, very available, because it was a different culture. And anyway, the one, and and Banks basically set new records, started. No, he did. One well, when he started out, and he documented it all. He started out with one woman at a time, then he went to two women at a time, and by the end of it, he was with two women and a man at a time, all documented. The only man on the ship that remained faithful to his dear wife, which is Elizabeth, was Captain Cook. And I found her a fascinating character too, but I do rebuke her. I gently not rebukes not the right word. I gently chide her from the from uh, two centuries later to say, Mrs. Cook, that thing you did when you were 93 years old, you realized you just had a couple of months to live and you went to the fireplace and you put in the fire all the letters that Captain Cook, your dear husband and who she referred to as Mr. Cook, had written <laughs> to you over the decades.
0: Gee. Well, and that in fact, might they been, only really that have had, been
1: his only heart. Well, they only really had a solve. bit over a bit over a decade together married. In fact, when I think of it, so they were married in 1762, and he made his landing in uh, made his landing in Australia, well, Tahiti in New Zealand, obviously, but in Australia, 1770, died in 79. Um, so they they were not, they didn't have a lot of lot of married life together.
0: Mm. And I mean, one of the things you say near the beginning of the book to illustrate that difference between (coughs) Banks and Cook is that they even record the time differently. Yes, (laughs) that's right. That is so confusing. And
1: I mean, again, with my researchers, I just... Too hard. Having but, to calculate, well, the, the, did the, the, these the, things happen at the same time? Yes, and there was the naval way of doing it and there was the civilian way of doing it, yeah. if I can put put it like that. And Cook did it the naval way and Banks did it the, the civilian way and that you know making an allowance for the
0: international dateline, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, amazing. So um, we talked a bit about um, Cook's sort of very straight personality, very calm, very moderate Yes. Uh, he was deep. in the first expedition. By the
1: third expedition, and I don't—I only cover the third expedition briefly because that's the death part, mm. but by that point he was a grumpy and, and could be cantankerous. But in the first expedition he had the deep respect of his men because the men were used to perhaps captains, flogging captains may not be the right word, but, but captains who were in it for themselves. And Cook had come from... The lower classes. He had an empathy for the lower classes. He wasn't being, you know, Lord Muck around mm. them. He he understood them, and one of the things he cared for very much was their health, and and stopping scurvy. And he realised sooner than most that sauerkraut was the way to do it. And the men hated sauerkraut. And so Cook, understanding their mentality, made sure that sauerkraut was served at the officers in the officers' mess at the captain's table. The word spread around the ship. The officers are reading sauerkraut. Why aren't we? I want some sauerkraut. And they were (laughs) given sauerkraut. And that's an example of the quiet genius that he had as a leader.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Do you think that sort of quiet genius is what allowed him to have this mythology projected onto him? The lack, well, it's almost the lack of personality. That, that's, that's
1: very interesting because I once wrote that about Donald Bradman, Sir Donald Bradman, mm. that, that Sir Donald Bradman, for most of us, was a blank canvas beyond, this, beyond his average of 99.94 and 334 not out at, I think, Leeds. You know, he had all these extraordinary statistics and he was called the Don. But what the man was like, we just didn't know. So you could project upon him whatever values you actually liked. That's a very. I think that's probably true also of Captain Cook. For most of us, he is a blank canvas. And just to revert briefly to my line about what happened at Botany Bay, I was speaking to 100 academics in, at ANU not long ago, and I, the subject of the, you know, what book I'm writing came up. And I said, well, I told them about Captain Cook, and I said, well, look, hands up. How many of you know what happened before he said the... the sign-? And no hand went up. And this is not a reflection on them. It's a reflection on we as a, we as a people that it's just extraordinary that how little we know. And part of my motivation in writing this book, and I've dedicated how... I've done two dedications to the book. One is to Professor John Maloney. The other is to J.C. Beaglehole. Now, J.C. Beaglehole... Is what the, a great name what a great <laughs> name but he, he's the great cook biographer i mean yeah. i'm not fit to tie his boot laces in terms of the work that he put in and he spent i think 40 years of his life documenting 10 years of cook's life and and so forth but he a new zealander and was just you know traveled to england and just got the original documents i mean in these days of the internet you know my researchers, i can i can look at the original facsimile of the of the logs by uh, with a few clicks of a button and in fact well the researchers sent it to me and say it's you can see right here but you can see you know you can you can see scratch out uh you know when he scratches out he wants to call botany bay stingrays bay and then you can see the scratch out and there it is no botany bay that kind of stuff but the one that really inspired me was professor john maloney and i've dedicated the book as well as jc beaglehold the late great professor john maloney who was a who was a uh, professor from ANU, and he was always good to me. He wrote a book on Eureka, and when I was speaking in uh, Canberra on Eureka, he came up to me afterwards and said, ''My name's John Maloney.'' I said, ''Gee, are you the Professor John Maloney that wrote the Eureka book?'' He said, ''Yes, I am.'' And, you know, ''Gee, I'm really honoured to meet you.'' And we got on really well, and I went down to... He wrote a book about Captain Cook a couple of years ago, which was not long before he died... And in the course of his speech, he told me about, and then I talked to him about it a lot afterwards, the little old man. Now, the little old man, what happens is after they leave Botany Bay and they sail up the coast of the east coast of Australia, and the extraordinary story of hitting the reef. I mean, talk about drama. Talk about in the middle of the night, you hit the Great Barrier Reef, and the jagged coral goes into the hull of the Endeavour and when they pull it off it breaks off it doesn't leave half the ship on the reef at which point they go straight to the bottom or stay the reef and the and the leaving a big hole in the hole what happens is it breaks off it helps seal it they still by a very interesting technique just managed to get to the shore and there they come across the aborigines there again Abri- the, the not the aborigines let me take that back the First Nations peoples, the Aboriginal people, and they skirmish and they fight over several weeks. Mm. And at the end of it, this little old man, it was described by Banks as a little old man, comes forward with a broken spear and lays it, offers it to Cook and basically saying, this is a broken spear, we must live in peace. And I think it was when I first, John, first talked about that, that... that. The point's made that this should be our symbol. This should be, mm. we you know other people can have other different symbols, and ours I suppose can be the gum tr- gum tree, or it could be Uluru, or it could be the the sheep that the nation rides on the sheep's back, etc. But what about a motive? As I say at the end of the book, a broken spear. We're the people that live in peace. We believe in we li- we believe in peace, and to acknowledge the little old man as you know perhaps a symbol of Australia and the mm. broken spear.
0: That's really interesting, and I think there's, there is a tension in the way that you portray Cook as as being internally conflicted about killing all these native people. Oh, gee, in, I, I in mean, I'm wandering. Maori's in, m- in New Zealand as well as yeah, in Australia. I'm
1: wandering in a minefield. Here he just he just because kills people, because, right? Oh, because <laughs> we're at a time. We are at a time. I'm I'm a passionate believer in mm. the statement from the heart, ururut. Yep. That, that should be a part of our constitution. We need to recognise. all all of that, I am absolutely on the side of the First Nations peoples. Mm. And nevertheless, I don't... I was fascinated by Cook. Cook never declared terianullis, terianullis... Um, he never he, he 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 did go through an absurd claiming of the east coast of Australia yeah. by hauling up the Union Jack and firing the firing the you know the, the firing the shots. It's absolutely absurd. But that's that's absurd from the twenty first century when you know the you made the the original peoples didn't say okay we cede this to you you can nothing like that no. and it was absolutely absurd. But it was what was done at the time and Cook himself. I am confident in saying from, from, you know, from the research and from going through the, trawling through the documents and the diaries, he was not an imperialist himself. He was a, absolutely an instrument of empire. But when you go through the diaries and letters after, particularly after the second voyage, where they returned to New Zealand, he, he worried about and talked about the debilitating effect. That white colonel, well, that that white contact, contact with a white man, had had on the Maori, and could see the degradation that they had wrought, and it worried him. He wasn't somebody who was just dismiss the people, and he, you know, he was. I think he was fundamentally kind, um, at least in, in those, certainly kinder in the first voyage than. The but in the context second, of uh, his era. Yeah, that's right. Mm. In the context of his era, but but, I the last time I was here in Booktopia... With intent was when well, I did the mutiny on the Bounty book, and you know, Bligh was not only a bastard; he was a bastard's bastard. But he was, but his violence was verbal, much less than flogging, and he didn't flog as much as Cook flogged. But Cook, Cook was a, a far more cerebral man that he's been given credit for. He was a very clever navigator, very clever cartographer and effectively a scientist. You know, like he. the reason that they came out for the first time was for the, for the, to document, to chronicle, to measure the transit of Venus, and that's why they went to Tahiti in the first place in 769, which is another story in itself.
0: Yeah. It's very interesting. Um, we're kind of running out of time, so I guess one last question that I kind of really want to know is how much did your initial view of Cook's legacy change um, after
1: writing a lot I, but again I was really Olivia starting mm. on a blank canvas I just didn't know any and I always think you know people say he's not an historian I say, damn right I'm not an historian and I know well I'm not I'm not I'm not I'm not you know I'm not trained as an historian but I'm a, I love stories and so I went into this not knowing what I would find and I like to use in my writing my ignorance as a tool so when I first started writing about wars and, you know, our first big war book I did, well, first was Nancy Wake, but Kokoda. When I was writing about Kokoda, I thought, well, even though Mum and Dad were both served in the Second World War, how many are in a platoon, how many are in a company, how many are in, in a battalion, how many are in a division? I didn't know. So I build that, when I find out, I build that into my account so the reader will also know. How do they work out, you know, navigation, latitude, longitude? I didn't know that. But I worked that into my account, and that was one of the stunning things about Cook, that he was he was the navigator of his age, he, and he, and and he was the cartographer that changed everything.
0: That's definitely my takeaway was was how um, brilliant he was. At, yes, that's at, right. At Interesting, the scientific isn't it? principles behind. Um, you know, tell math, me slowly how much. Be that,
1: honest. Yeah. Just put aside your put aside your you're a professional flogger of books, but but no no. <laughs> be honest. What,
0: what did you think? I think you're – I mean, talking to you about it at, as we were doing the signing and and this description you had of your your ch- your, your books as children or books mm. as yeah. – um, I think that's about right. I, I think he is a very um, – not a f- fascinating character. Mm. Yeah. His, his but life, what he did – His life is really interesting and I think where this book is – at its best is when you are talking about all the people around him and how he interacted with people. Yeah, and yeah in that like Banks is really fascinating. Valuable. He's awful, but he's fascinating. Um, but I think Cook himself is not fascinating. No. <laughs> he's fascinating because of Yes, because that's
1: exactly right. Mm. It's his times that are fascinating. Mm. He does not leap from the page... Mm. But what he saw and did leaps from the page. I mean when you when you get to that part of again, I go back to the what what happened at Botany Bay, it is just amazing. Yeah.
0: That is that is an amazing story. Um, We would love to keep talking about this book. There's a lot in this, but also I think people should read it for themselves. Thank you. Mm. Thank you so much for coming in and signing that gigantic pile of books (laughs) and for uh, taking the time to talk to us. See you again. Thank you. Thanks. And you can make one of those books in the pile yours by going to booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us
1: on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on
0: YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget, for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.